Chapter Twenty Four of Marie Antoinette and the Downfall of Royalty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marie Antoinette and the Downfall of Royalty by Imbert de Saint-Amour, translated by Elizabeth G. Martin. Chapter Twenty Four. The Fete of the Federation in Seventeen Ninety Two. The Fete of the Federation, which was to be celebrated July Fourteen, was awaited with anxiety. The Federates came into Paris full of the most revolutionary projects. Anxiety and anguish reigned at the Tuileries. Louis Sixteen and Marie Antoinette. Who were to be present at Chamdemar, feared to be assassinated there. The queen's importunities decided the king to have a plastron made to ward off poniard thrust. Composed of fifteen thickness of Italian taffeta, this plastron consisted of a vest and a large belt. Madame Campan secretly tried it on the king in the chamber when Marie Antoinette was lying. Pulling Madame Campan by the dress. As far as possible from the queen's bed, Louis XVI whispered, "It is to satisfy her that I yield. They will not assassinate me. Their plan is changed. They will put me to death in another way." When the king had gone out, the queen forced Madame Campan to tell her what he had just said. "I had divined it," she exclaimed. "He said this long time that." All that is going on in France is an imitation of the revolution in England under Charles I. I began to dread an impeachment for him. As for me, I am a foreigner, and they will assassinate me. What will become of my poor children? And she fell to weeping. Madame Campan tried to administer a nervine, but the queen refused it. Nervous maladies, said she. Are the ailments of happy women? I no longer have them. Without her knowledge, a sort of corset, in the style of her husband's plastron, had been made for her. Nothing could induce her to wear it. If seditious persons assassinate me, so much the better. They will deliver me from the most sorrowful life. The fete of the Federation was celebrated in seventeen ninety-two. Amidst extremely tragical preoccupations, things had changed very greatly since the fete, which had excited such enthusiasm two years earlier. On July fourteenth, seventeen ninety, the Champ de Mars was filled at four o'clock in the morning by a crowd delirious with joy. At eight o'clock in the morning of July fourteenth, seventeen ninety-two, it was still empty. The people were said to be at Bastille, witnessing the laying off. The first stone of the column to be erected on the ruins of the famous fortress. On the Champ de Mars, there were no magnificent altar served by the three hundred priests, no side benches covered by an innumerable crowd. None of that sincere and ardent joy which throbbed in every heart two years before, for the fete of seventeen ninety-two, eighty-three little tents representing the departments of the kingdom. Had been erected on the hillocks of sand. 
Before each tent stood a poplar so frail that it seemed as if a breath might blow away the tree and its tricolored pendant. In the middle of Chandumar were four stretchers covered with canvas, painted grey, which would have made a miserable decoration for a boulevard theatre. It was a so-called tomb, an honorary monument to those who had died or were about to die on the frontiers. On one side of it was the inscription, Tremble, tyrants, we will avenge them. The altar of the country could hardly be seen. It was formed of truncated column, placed on top of the altar steps raised in 1790. Perfumes were burned on the four small corner altars. Two hundred yards further off near the sign, a large tree had been set up and named the Tree of Feudalism. From its branches, dependent escutcheons, helmets, and blue ribbons interwoven with chains. This tree rose out of a wood pile on which lay a heap of crowns, tiaras, cardinals' hats, St. Peter's keys, ermine mantles, doctor's caps, and titles of nobility. A royal crown was among them, and beside it the escutcheons of the Count de Provence, the Count de Artois, and the Prince de Condé. The organizers of the fete hoped to induce the king himself to set fire to this pile covered with feudal emblems. A figure representing liberty and another representing law were placed on the casters by the aid of which the two divinities were to be rolled about. Fifty-four pieces of cannon bordered the Chamdumar on the side next to the sign, and the Persian cap crowned every tree. At eleven in the morning, the king and his cortege arrived at the military school. A detachment of cavalry opened the march. There were three carriages. In the first were the Prince de Poix, the Marquis de Brise, and the Count de Saint-Priest. In the second, the Queen's ladies, Mesdames Sutaran, de la Roche Aimo, de Maillet, and de Macau. In the third, the King, the Queen, their two children, and Madame Elizabeth. The trumpets sounded and the drums beat a salute. A salvo of artillery announced the arrival of the royal family. The sovereign's countenance was mild and benevolent. Mary Antoinette appeared still more majestic than usual. The dignity of her demeanour, the grace of her children, and the angelic charm of Madame Elizabeth inspired a tender respect. The little dauphin wore the uniform of a national guard. He has not deserved the cap yet, said the queen to the grenadiers. The royal family took their place on the balcony of the military school, which was covered with red velvet carpet embroidered with gold, and watched the popular procession entering the Chamdemar by the gate of the Rue de Grenelle and marching towards the altar of the country. What a strange procession! Men, women, children, armed with pikes, sticks, and hatchets, bands singing the Saira, drunken harlots adorned with flowers, people from the faubourgs with the inscription Long live Pichiam. Chalked on their headgear, six legions of the National Guards marching pell-mell with the sanculotas, 
red caps, placards with devices either ferocious or stupid. Like this one, long live the heroes who died in the siege of the Bastille, a plan in relief of the celebrated fortress, a travelling printing press throwing off copies of the revolutionary manifesto, which the crowd at first mistook for a little guillotine, a great deal of noise and shouting, and there you have the popular cottage. By way of compensation, the troops of the line and the grenadiers of the National Guard displayed extreme royalist sentiments, the 104th Regiment of the Infantry, having altered under the balcony, its band played on air, where is one better off than in the bosom of his family? The moment when Louis XVI left the military school to walk on the altar of the country with the National Assembly was not without solemnity. A certain anxiety was felt by all as to what might happen. Would Louis XVI be struck by a ball or by a poniard? What might not be feared from so many demoniacs howling like cannibals? The king, the deputies, the soldiers, the crowd, all pressed against each other in a solid mass that left no vacant spaces. All was in continual undulation. Louis XVI could only advance slowly and with difficulty. The intervention of the troops was necessary to enable him to reach the altar of the country where he was to swear the elegance for the second time to the constitution, whose fragments were to overwhelm his throne. It needed the character of Louis XVI, Madame de Stael has said. It needed that martyr character, which he never belied, to support such a situation as he did. His gait, his countenance, had something peculiar to himself. On other occasions, one might have wished he had more grandeur, but at this moment it was enough for him to remind what he was in order to appear sublime. From a distance I watched his powdered head in the midst of all those black ones. His coat, still embroidered as it had been in former days, stood out against the costumes of the common people who pressed around him. When he ascended the steps of the altar, one seemed to behold the sacred victim offering himself in voluntary sacrifice. The queen had remained on the balcony of the military school from where she watched, through a lorgnette, the dangerous progress of the king. A prey to the inexpressible emotion, she remained motionless during an entire hour, hardly able to breathe on account of excessive anguish. She used the lorgnette steadily, but at one moment she cried out, He has come down two steps. This cry made all those about her shudder. The king could not, in fact, reach the summit of the altar because a throng of suspicious-looking persons had already taken possession of it. Deputy Dumas had the presence of mind to cry out, Attention, grenadiers! Present arms! The intimidated Saint-Culottes remained quiet, and Louis XVI took the oath amid the thundering of cannons rang beside the sign. It was then proposed to the king that he should set fire to the tree of feudalism. It was close to the river, and the arms of France were hung upon it. Louis XVI spared himself that shame, exclaiming, There is no more feudalism.
he returned to the military school by the way he came the sixth legion of the national guard had not yet marched past when the cavalry announced the king's approach this legion quickening its pace was intercepted by the royal escort and invaded not to say routed by the populace which from all sides pressed into its ranks meanwhile the anguish of marie antoinette redoubled the expression of the queen's face madame de stael says again will never be effaced from my memory her eyes were drowned in tears the splendor of her toilet the dignity of her demeanor contrasted with the throng that surrounded her nothing separated her from the populace but a few national guards the armed men assembled in the champ de mars seemed more as if they had come together for a riot than for a festival pechion who had been reinstated in his functions as mayor of paris on the previous day was the hero of the occasion they called him king pechion and the cheers which resounded in the honor of this revolutionist were like a funeral knell in the ears of marie antoinette at last louis 16 appeared in front of the military school the queen experienced a momentary joy in seeing him approach rising hastily she ran down the stairs to meet him always calm the king tenderly clasped his wife's hand at once royalist sentiment took fire all who were present national guards troops of the lion spitzers people in the courts at the windows on the balconies and gates all cried long live the king long live the queen the royal family regained the tuileries in the midst of acclamations at the entrance of the palace enthusiasm deepened from the royal court to the great stairway of the horloge pavilion the grenadiers of the national guard who had escorted and saved the king formed into a line with shouts of joy all former souvenirs says the count de vaublanc in his memoirs all former habits of respect then awoke yes i saw and observed this multitude it was animated with the best sentiments at heart it was faithful to its king and crowned him with sincere benedictions but to popular love and fidelity offered any support to a tottering throne he is mad who can think so the people will be spectators of the latest combat and will applaud the victor and let no one blame them what can they do if they are not united encouraged and led the people behold a few seditious individuals attack a throne and a few courageous men defend it they fear one party and desire the success of the other when the struggle is over they submit and obey the most honest of them weep in silence the timid force themselves to display a guilty joy in order to escape the hatred of the victors whom they see bathing themselves in blood they think about their families their affairs their means of support they are not expected to lead themselves that duty was imposed on others have they fulfilled it it is said that during the fete those who were friendly to the king amongst the crowd were awaiting a signal they expected from him they hoped that by the assistance of the swiss they would force their way to the royal family during the confusion of a hand to hand affray and get them safely out of paris but louis 16 neither spoke nor acted he returned to his palace without having dared anything and nevertheless there were still many chances of safety open imagine the effect of a haughty bearing a commanding gesture 
the place of the inert attitude habitual to the unfortunate sovereign fancy the most christian king the heir of louis fourteenth on the horseback haranguing the people in the style of his witty and valiant ancestor henry four he is still king the troops of the line are faithful the great majority of the national guard are well disposed towards him luckner lafayette dumouriez himself would ask nothing better than to defend him if he would have to show a little energy the day after the ceremony of july fourteenth lafayette was still anxious that louis sixteenth should leave paris openly and go to compiegne so as to show france and europe that he was free in case of resistance the general demanded only fifty loyal cavaliers to take the royal family away from compiegne picked squadrons would conduct them to the midst of the french army the asylum of devotion and honor but louis sixteenth refused the last resources remaining to him were to evaporate between his hands he will profit neither by the sympathies of all the european courts which ardently desire his safety by his civil list which might be such a efficacious mean of action nor by the loyalty of his brave soldiers who are ready to shed their last drop of blood in his defence a large party in the legislative assembly would ask nothing but a signal providing it was seriously given to rally with vigour to the royal cause he had intrepid champions there whom no menace could affright and who on every occasion no matter how violent or tumultuous the galleries might be had braved the storm with heroic constancy public opinion was changing for the better the schemes and languages of the jacobins exasperated the mass honest people the provinces were sending addresses of fidelity to the king what was lacking to the monarch to enable him to combine so many scattered elements into a single group a little will a little of what essential quality audacity which according to danton is the last word of politics but louis sixteenth was a timorous soul if he makes one step forward he is in haste to make another back he is scrupulous hesitating he has no confidence in himself or any one else this prince so incontestably courageous acts as if he were recovered he has made so many concessions already that the idea of any manner of resistance seems to him chimerical does the fate of charles first make him dread this beginning of a civil war as the supreme danger does he fear to imperil the lives of his wife and children by an energetic deed is he expecting foreign aid does he think to prove his wisdom by his patience and that success will crown delay is he so benevolent so gentle that the least thought of repression is repugnant to him does he wish to carry to extremes that pardon of injuries which is recommended by the gospel what is plain is that he rejects every firm resolution palliatives expedients half measures were what suited this honest but feeble nature disturbed by contradictory counsels and no longer knowing what to desire or what to hope he looked on at his own destruction like an unmoved spectator he was no longer a sovereign full of sentiment of his power and his rights but an almost unconscious victim of fatality example full of startling lessons for all leaders of state 
who adopt weakness as a system and who under pretext of benevolence or moderation no longer know how to foresee to will or to strike end of chapter 24 recording by lambda 2.0